This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, in the key swing state of Florida, Democrats picked a terrific candidate to run for governor. Our John Nichols will explain. Also, how can the Democrats beat Trump? Gary Young has the answer. Hint, centrism competing for the middle won't work. First up, surveillance capitalism in the age of Trump. Trump Watch starts right now. Now that we're under surveillance 24-7 by the NSA, the FBI, the local police, Facebook, Google, hackers, the Russians, the Chinese, the corporate data brokers, the private spyware groups, and companies from which we've ordered stuff on the internet, is there any privacy left? For that, we turn to Judith Coburn. She covered the war in Indochina from 1970 to 73 for the Village Voice, the Far Eastern Economic Review, and Pacifica Radio. She's working now on a memoir about Vietnam in the 1960s, and she writes now for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. We reached her today in Oakland. Judith Coburn, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on. I've, I've, I haven't been on Pacifica Radio in a long time. <laughs> well, I've been on quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a fascinating career trajectory. Once upon a time, you were a war correspondent covering wars not only in Indochina, but then in Central America and the Middle East. Uh, you made it your job to write about the victims of war, the people we call civilian casualties. But now, as they say, you have transitioned to a new career. Tell us about your new job. Well, I think I'm still, <laughs> I think I'm still defending uh, civilian casualties, but uh, <laughs> I am a, a private investigator. I mostly work on death penalty cases. I'm against the death penalty, so most of my defendants are people who might go uh, to be executed, and we're trying to you know, hold up a, a, a thin line there between uh, that happening and, and their rights and the things that they've done. So it's all kind of related in a way, I guess. So as a, as a private investigator, uh, you write um, in your new piece for Tom Dispatch and the Nation about something you call surveillance capitalism as a key part of your job. Uh, what exactly do you mean? Well, um, a number of people are using the phrase, I didn't invent it, I don't want to take credit for it, but I think it's very resonant because what's different about um, surveillance, uh, you know, than, than it was in the 20th century and particularly back in the 60s and what we all worried about, we were worried about the government and the FBI wiretapping us. Yeah. Um, now I would say the most extensive invasion of people's privacy are actually, you know, big private companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon, um, you know, following us all around, uh, you know, as well as the FBI and the National Security Agency and so on, in order to get us to buy more and buy more from them because, you know, they um, believe that they know us well and are providing a service. So, 
you know, that's why I call it uh, surveillance capitalism, because it isn't just government surveillance. It's, yeah. you know, surveillance by private companies as well as the government. So, uh, of course, the biggest of, of those uh, private companies is, is uh, Google, and we have our problems with Google, and it turns out Donald Trump has problems with Google. He just <laughs> tweeted what yesterday that Google is biased against him in their search results. He says they should be investigated and regulated, something some friends of ours have been talking about. Turns out Trump does not use Google. He doesn't even use an internet browser. He apparently gets printouts from his staff and, of course, watches TV and, and, and tweets. Uh, uh, what do you make of Trump's attack on Google? Uh, I think he just has this idea that, you know, anybody connected with the media, and I guess in some you know, uh, n not very knowledgeable way he connects Google with the media, but that's, that's actually there's some truth to that. And he just thinks everybody's against him, you know. And um, so I think, uh, I don't think there's any chance there's going to be any serious regulation of any of these companies. Um, but he's just, you know, in a way it's a kind of a know-nothing attack too. I mean, you know, he doesn't know anything about this, and you know, therefore he can connect with other people who don't understand it either. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, so, yes. You know. So uh, uh, you're, you you uh, direct our attention to the, the corporate data brokers. And uh, in your piece uh, in The Nation, you mentioned a company called Tracers, which I had never heard of. So I went to their website. It says, Tracers Information Specialists, Inc., is one of the nation's leading providers of public records information and reference products containing non-public information about individuals and businesses. Uh, what are reference products containing non-public information about individuals? Well, your social security number, for example. Hmm. Uh, you know, where you live. I mean, there are a lot of things that are in this kind of gray area, which is that they're not illegal for someone to find out, but they would very, be very difficult for, uh, you know, an individual to find out. So, for yeah. example, you know, uh, John Weiner's phone number, his email address, his, his, all of his social media uh, handles and, uh, you know, uh, Facebook uh, login numbers and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to pay for a social security number. I think it's always sort of funny uh, that you have to pay extra for it. But, I mean, social security <laughs> numbers should not be on these, uh, you know, uh, these data brokers shouldn't have your social security. Well, I just want to reassure you that Tracer's Information Specialist, Inc. said, we provide these reference products only to individuals and companies that have a legitimate reason to use the information, close quote. I guess that's that's good news. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's true that you have to be on most of the... I won't speak to Tracer because that's actually not one that I subscribe to, but the ones that I subscribe to, you know, they're all... Uh, some are better on some things and some are better than others. But you, you use... You know, the ones I subscribe to, you have to be a licensed private investigator or a licensed attorney, and you have to be able to prove that to the company. Wow. Um, well, that is a... To, well, it's something. It's but, something. You know, that, doesn't, that doesn't protect your Social Security number from, 
you know, uh, private investigators who don't follow the rules and uh, do, you know, searches for their friends and searches for their ex-girlfriends and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, suppose I want help in locating an old girlfriend who I want to stalk and harass. Uh, Will these private data companies help me out? Uh, well, they could. I mean, what you could do is, you know, you could hire a private investigator and not tell them that you're stalking this person and just that you want to find her. And uh, they'll find her for you, probably. Um, I mean, very few people are not on these databases. I mean, the amount of uh, information can vary quite a bit because uh, they're dealing with property records and uh you know, whether uh, you've ever had a, ha- you know, uh, had your house foreclosed on or whether you've ever gone into bankruptcy or a lot of things that, you know, technically are sort of uh, in the public domain that would be very, very difficult for somebody to find if they weren't, you know, a licensed investigator or an attorney, particularly in another state. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can go to the criminal courts building in Oakland and find out in the public records that are there, uh, you know, what criminal cases there are against somebody. But without these databases, I would have to fly to New York to, or fly to L.A. to find out if John Wiener <laughs> you know, had a criminal record or not, hmm. uh, because all these records are kept by counties. So imagine trying to find, uh, you know, records uh, on somebody who might have lived in 10 or 12 different places. So 25, 25 years ago, the job uh, of the private investigator was, uh, you're saying, was much tougher. And did these did these companies exist at all? No, it's all dependent on the Internet. It's the Internet that has really changed. The Internet and cell phones have really changed the investigative business, just like, you know, tech has, has disrupted the taxi business and the journalism business and everything else. Um you know, it opens up a lot of information on a national and sometimes international basis to a much larger group of people. Um, and so the question is, you know, how is that information being used? Um, you know, it's used, uh, the, I'm always amused by it. And, and people have to know, I mean, this is in the old days, you know, it was the FBI actually listening to your wiretapped phone. Yeah. Now it's just computers uh, with algorithms that say, you know, uh, any Arabic words, any whatever they say, any Arabic words, any mention of terrorism, any, you know, I mean, I've started, for example, since the Internet came in, being very cautious about what I search for. You know, I feel like as a private citizen, uh, it's actually a risk for me to get too interested in it. You know, it's my right to be interested in, say, what ISIS is doing. Hmm. I mean, I you know that's that's not a good thing to be searching for on the internet these days. Well, I remember after the the uh, Boston Marathon bombing, the police uh, uh, broke down the front door and went, broke into somebody's house, guns drawn. Uh, it turned out that the kid had had Googled a uh, pressure uh, what was it called the kind of bomb pressure cooker bomb to find out what it was. And that the mother at the same time had Googled backpacks. And since the <laughs> the right. pressure cooker bomb had been in a backpack, the police decided to raid their house and uh, check them out. And uh, I guess that's what you're talking about here. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, there's a lot of ways that this privacy stuff impacts on on people that they're really not aware of or don't think about. But it really is true that I think your, uh, if you think about this, your First Amendment rights could be uh, definitely compromised by the fear of what would happen to you if you uh, got on the internet and tried to do some research about unpopular subjects yeah. or subjects that the you know the FBI or the local police are interested in. Yeah. Well, uh, you said uh, cell phones are uh, the greatest thing that's happened to local police and federal investigators ever. Uh, uh, I know that the uh, the whole problem of uh, of prosecutors finding the people they are looking for at the times of the crime was committed involves going to the cell phone companies and seeing whether the cell phone towers were pinged by the cell phones of the suspect. I have turned off location services on my iPhone, so I'm I'm safe from that, right? Yeah, uh, yes, you are. I mean, you, you then have to turn it back on if you want to get a map of something, but, you know. But you, do, you actually, you can get maps of things without location services. Uh, um, uh, services being turned on, and I have them off too. I have them off on my computer. I, you know, not that these things totally protect you, but um, there is some. Now, on the other hand, see, then there's then there's a problem with cell. So, okay, so with at least in California, with a warrant, the police can get your phone records. Well, how how are cell phone records different from uh, landline records? Well, first of all, there's this location situation, uh, you know, and then they can get your text messages as part of that or your emails as, you know, part of that warrant. Um, and the cell phone thing is a mixed blessing because on the one hand, if I make a call, say, uh, you know, in the East Bay to San Francisco, that could come up on my phone records. But People think, and juries think, that what that means is that uh, the police know exactly where I was when I made that phone call. Well, they don't, um, hmm. unless you have location services turned on. But cell phones, your calls don't necessarily go through the closest cell phone tower to where you are making the call. In fact, if that cell phone tower has a lot of calls coming into it, your call will be diverted to another cell phone tower. So when people think, you know, juries always think, well, you know, the police says he was right here because he made that call. He actually might have been in, you know, Santa Cruz um, mm. rather than, uh, I'm just giving that as an example, rather than San Francisco. So this stuff is, you know, it seems uh, really scary, but there's also, it's very unreliable. Um my favorite example, of course, is facial uh, recognition, which is now the hottest thing that law enforcement wants, of course. They want to be able to take a picture of a demonstration, say, and then be able to identify everybody in the picture by facial identifications. Well, Wired uh, wrote this piece recently, and I linked to it in my Tom Dispatch piece, that um, uh, facial recognition <laughs> software confuses gorillas with black people. Oh, no. Well, that's racist. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, that's, again, it's not a person doing that. It's an algorithm doing that. And so now, apparently, uh, the, the, the software companies are, are basically taking down all their pictures of gorillas. 
hospital. <laughs> oh, man. These things won't be confused. I mean, it's just... I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny. It's um, terrible. Anyway. Well, we've, so, only, we've only got a couple minutes left here, and I, I, I love your story. This is not part of your work for death penalty cases. It's another part of your work helping documentary filmmakers uh, find uh, people that they need for their, for their documentaries. I love your story about the filmmaker making a documentary about the first Nepalese woman to climb Mount Everest. The filmmaker came to you for help. But it was not because you're a mountain climber. Uh, tell us the story. <laughs> no, I, I knew nothing. Uh, she was trying to find, the, you know, this expedition, in fact, did achieve the summit. But on the way down, they were all killed by an avalanche, except for one guy who was, one Sherpa, who was sent by her before the avalanche. She felt that something bad was going to happen and they needed more oxygen. So there was one survivor of this uh, expedition. So, needless to say, the filmmaker really wanted a, you know, a first-hand account of everything that had happened. And, I mean, I just had no idea. I said, were you going to send me to Nepal? And she said, no, no, I don't have the money for that. So, you know, I got on these databases. Oh, and then I, and then I said, well, what, what is his name? And she said, uh, uh, Sherpa. So I said, <laughs> oh, okay. You know, that won't be too hard. She said, well, no, that's, that's the last name of most Nepalese. Of everybody, went, yes. Oh, great. You know, this is like somebody calling me up and saying, so I need to find this guy, John Smith. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what state he lives in. I don't know his birth date. I don't know his social security number. I don't know his address. I mean, you get like, you know, 50,000 uh, hits on one of these database searches. So... But by just complete serendipity, I uh, got on Google this time. I mean, that's usually the last place people with database subscriptions go to. But And, you know, I always tell everybody, don't give up on the first three pages, you know. So on about page 28 or something, I found a, an article from, the Portland, from a Portland, Oregon alternative newspaper that doesn't even exist anymore that somebody had scanned in, uh, you know, to... Uh, the internet in the 90s and it was an article about a guy named Pemba Sherpa who had left Oregon he said because too many of his friends had died Uh so so I thought well this might be the guy who knows you know so it turned out in this article it also said he was married to a woman who taught mathematics at a very small college in Oregon so I call up the uh the you know and and again this was like 1996 or something right so more than 20 years ago so I call up the college and get transferred to the math department and there his wife is still teaching and she said yes that's the Pemba Serpa and yes he'd love to talk to you I'm sure about what happened it was a terrible experience that you know he would like to tell you about it so you know it's just weird these things I mean uh Serendipity, you know. I, I mean, the filmmaker was flabbergasted. <laughs> and we <laughs> so are, was I, we're flabbergasted. We are all mm-hmm. flabbergasted. So the moral here is go beyond the first pa- three pages of Google results. Judith yeah, Coburn, Judith <laughs> Coburn, I'm sorry, we're out of time. Uh, Judith Coburn spent 40 years as an investigative journalist. Now she's a private eye specializing in death penalty cases and searches for people who documentary filmmakers are trying to find. She wrote about surveillance capitalism for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. Judith, thanks so much for talking with us today. Okay, John. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch in the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, 
Our political update with John Nichols, that's in a minute, on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. But first, we got some really good news from Florida on Tuesday night when the primary results came in. The Democrats picked a progressive as their candidate for governor. His name is Andrew Gillum. He's the young black mayor of Tallahassee. And meanwhile, the Republicans picked a Trump wannabe who will be running against him. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. And his most recent book is Horseman of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. Well, here's the New York Times lead on the Florida story. story. Quote, a liberal Florida Democrat pulled off an upset victory Tuesday in the state's primary for governor, while Trump's favorite candidate cruised to victory for the GOP, setting up a fierce fall showdown in the nation's largest political battleground. Close quote, New York Times. Tell us about what happened in Florida. Well, what happened was pretty incredible. Uh, You know, Florida's got an open governorship because the sitting governor, uh, Rick Scott, is running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing about Scott, whether you like him or not, and I happen to, you know, he's not the biggest fan, uh, is that he was a very, very wealthy man who essentially bought the governorship twice. Uh, he also had Republican wave election years on his side. And so uh, you kind of got a warped sense of the governorship of Florida, the sense that, well, you know, maybe Republicans really are the dominant party there. But that's just not the case. The reality is that the governorship of Florida is very much up for grabs. And so you had uh, serious Democratic and Republican primaries, multi-candidate fields running. On the uh, Republican side, the assumption was that their nominee would be more of a mainstream Republican, a guy named Putnam has been active in politics for a long time, held a number of offices. Uh, but he got upset by this Ron DeSantis guy who was Trump's candidate. He's a congressman, and we'll get back to him in a moment. But let's just say, um, if, you, if you shot steroids into Trump, you would get Ron DeSantis. <laughs> okay. Um, and, yeah, it's a scary thought. Uh, on the Democratic side, you had a, a, a different game, a multi-candidate field, and the clear front runner throughout most of it was a woman named Gwen Graham. She was uh, she's a member of a very prominent Florida political family. She's been a co- member of Congress herself, and she just had all the I's dotted and T's crossed. But the thing was, she was a relatively moderate player and not uh, not considered to be the most exciting candidate. And there was another candidate running, a former mayor of Miami Beach, quite well-to-do, who spent very, very heavily and seemed to be coming on strong, uh, possibly to displace Gwen Graham. But the one person everybody sort of counted out of the race through most of it was Andrew Gillum. And Andrew Gillum, 
uh, was the uh, just a remarkable figure. Uh, he was the youngest, one of the youngest people ever elected to uh, citywide office in Tallahassee. Then uh, became the mayor of Tallahassee. High marks as a very effective mayor, nationally recognized as a young political leader, very engaged politically. So engaged politically that in one of the Russian hacks it was revealed that his name was on a long list of potential vice presidential candidates for um, Hillary Clinton in 2016. Wow. So that gives you a sense of the guy. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, he, now very long list, so let's yeah. be clear. I'm not sure that he was ever going to get to the top, but right. he was somebody when they you know, listed folks around the country who might be a strong candidate, his name was there. And, um, and so he got into this race, and the interesting thing was, that he ran left from the start. And it wasn't a casual uh, progressive campaign. It was a very, very detailed, very focused campaign. And it was one really of, of what uh, the folks at Dem- Democracy for America refer to as this new American majority campaign, in that he really reached out to young people, to young women, to people of color, to uh, rural and urban folks have been very much forgotten in the political process. It was, it was about building out what our politics might be. And to give you an example, and there are many examples of how he did this, when the Parkland shootings occurred, um, he didn't seek to you know, jump in front of the parade or anything like that, but when the Parkland students were you know, doing rallies and marches and events that essentially took them to Tallahassee, he joined them. He marched with them. He was at their side. And, and that was striking because not every politician would do that, especially in Florida. It wasn't that uh, Democratic politicians weren't sympathetic and supportive. It was just that there were real demands being made as regards gun control, Yeah, very specific demands. And he embraced them. He, he marched on, at their side. He took on the NRA very specifically. And then he did it on a host of other issues, immigrant rights issues, uh, again and again, being very, very bold in his critique of ICE. And, and finally, as an example, he fully embraced Medicare for All, uh, saying that you know, he really wanted to you know, look for solutions that might be a unique Florida solution, but still this idea of you know, talking about you know, kind of getting beyond the empty debate about health care and the, the marginal stuff and going to the heart of the matter. Uh, so he was clearly identified as a progressive. This is where it got interesting. He started to get a lot of endorsements for progressive groups on the ground, uh, national and local, uh, groups like Color of Change, PAC, uh, Democracy for America, uh, Our Revolution. And then he, in early August, he was still down in the polls. He wasn't, he hadn't really, you know, kind of, you know, caught fire, so to speak, politically. Um, but Bernie Sanders endorsed him. And then, uh, in mid-August, Bernie Sanders came down and actually spent, you know, a substantial bit of time in Florida barnstorming through key areas with Andrew Gillum at his side. And um, the interesting dynamic, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't want to over-credit Sanders here, um, because I think there was a lot of other factors in play. Okay. But it, it was around that time that, you know, you started to see Gillum move up a little bit. And 
then some other factors coming into play with, you know, more endorsements, raising a decent amount of money, but also using social media very effectively. Well, in fact, I believe, I believe, behold, I believe he spent the least amount of money of any of the, uh, the, the four Democratic candidates. Yes, that is true, although in Florida, everybody spends a lot of money. So, okay. Um, okay. You know, he had, he had resources. He was not, you know, marginalized uh, by money, as, he, as is the case in some races. But he also very effectively used uh, social media, and he kept on, you know, working at this with this very positive, very sophisticated, very smart messaging uh, reaching out to all these groups, doing incredible mobilization on Election Day, and it worked. He won by about 2%. He, he so, came out a couple points ahead of Glenn Graham. So a- Andrew Gillum's strategy is one you and I have talked about here many times. Instead of focusing on the voters in the middle who you try to persuade to 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 uh, to swing over to the Democrats, you try to expand the electorate. Uh, bring in the non-voters, uh, and that requires uh, energy and commitment and an inspiring uh, message. And so Florida has become a test case for that progressive strategy. Uh, now let's talk about the Republican candidate uh, who will oppose Andrew Gillum, Ron DeSantis. I, uh, I, is it true that his TV ads show him teaching his infant son how to build a wall, a Trumpian wall? Yep. No, no, but that's that's nothing, John. 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 That's that's just child play compared to his website for his campaign. Which, when you go to the website for Ron DeSantis's campaign for governor of Florida, you you cannot be sure of whose website it is because there are at least as many pictures of Donald Trump on the front of his web page as there are of him. And when you, if you Google Ron DeSantis. You get uh, the uh, uh, a line the only candidate who is fully endorsed by Donald Trump. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, the guy is just—it's just through the roof. Uh, he is the number one, all-in, most fully Trumpicized candidate <laughs> in the United Trumpicized. States, and 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 he welcomes it. Okay. You know, that's like Trumpicized, I think, is sort of like, it's like siding for your, you know, like like some sort of aluminum siding for your house or something. <laughs> um, and and he's, and, and now I, I know that some people might doubt that, right? Some people might say, oh, Mr. Nichols, you know, there's a lot of Trumpy candidates around this country. But I think Ron DeSantis closed the circle on the morning after the election when he went on Fox News and... He was talking about Andrew Gillum and said, you know, of course, he's articulate, right? Mm. Which, you know, mm. we know what other, that means. You know, had some other, well, he had some other compliments for him. And, and basically, he's trashed on the other Democrats. Said, uh, you know, so this, it was an uncomfortable little soliloquy to begin with. And then, at a certain point, he said, you know, essentially, we don't need somebody, a candidate, talking about Gillum, to monkey this up, mm. Mm. talking about Florida. Yeah. And, um, of course, Andrew Gillum's first African-American uh, nominee, for, you know, pioneering African-American nominee, could be the first African-American governor. Um, and there was immediate reaction. The chairman of the 
uh, State Democratic Party referred to this as a, a racialized dog, I think a racialized dog whistle. Other people, you know, everybody got it. You know, that there was, this, this was uncomfortable at the very least. Something, something had happened here that, that shocked, I think, even a lot of Republicans that he would, you know, say this. And, but here's the incredible thing. Given multiple chances to, to kind of back off or to say, no, I didn't mean that or I misspoke or something like that, he, he's danced around it in the same way that Donald Trump does. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, in fact, you know, he followed up that line with a reference to uh, Gillum as a socialist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it happens Gillum doesn't identify as a socialist. Uh, and Trump also was tweeting out the same morning, referring to Gillum as a socialist. And, you know, it's quite clear that their intention here is to run against Andrew Gillum and try to completely marginalize him and, uh, you know, do much of what Trump did, if you'll recall, and everyone will, when Trump was running around talking about the birth certificate, yeah. talking about all these things that tried to make Obama somebody who was different and and separate and they're clearly going to try this on Gillum but here's the interesting thing about Gillum this guy has remarkable skills and is a remarkably able communicator and so when he was asked about it remember uh you know that that DeSantis had referred to him as articulate and you know something like well organized or well spoken or something like that, and so he's asked about it, and Gillum said, well, let me reply in an articulate and well-spoken way, <laughs> you know, and so he's got a good, you know, he's quick-witted, good sense of humor, good um, strength on this, and uh, I don't, I just think he's ready for it. I, I think he is, he is ready to fight this, and it's going to be, you know, Florida is a closely divided state. It's going to be I think, I'm just going to go flat out say it. I think it's going to be the most interesting, remarkable, scary, and potentially hopeful uh, gubernatorial race in the country this year. And just in a minute or two. Because these guys are such opposites. Yeah. 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 In a minute or two we have left here, I also want to notice that that, uh, – Florida has an incumbent Democratic senator, Bill Nelson, who's not particularly inspiring and is uh, somewhat endangered right now, who needs help in his race against the departing Republican governor, Rick Scott. Um, If Gillum brings out a a big Democratic turnout, that's going to help hold on to that Florida Senate seat, too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, you'll hear some kind of casual pundits say, oh, would have been better if, if the Florida Democrats had nominated someone who was boring and, you know, or somebody who was centrist or somebody who was, you know, not so dynamic. You know, there's like this weird politics of saying, you know, you kind of want to, you know, keep your head low. Uh, well, uh, that doesn't, that's just foolish. The fact of the matter is Florida is a state with a very transitory, or I should say, that's not quite the right word, I'd say a, a very rapidly growing uh, often moving population, and so as a result, uh, a dynamic candidate who can reach people, uh, you know, at at fundamental levels, no matter where they live, whether they're newcomers to the state or old timers, whether they move from one part of the state to the other, however you want to describe it, 
um, you know, that's a useful candidate beyond all the other arguments for him. And uh, I think that, that, yes, there is a possibility, if things go right for Andrew Gillum, that he could save uh, a U.S. Senate seat, help to save a U.S. Senate seat for the Democrats. And he could also play a role in flipping two or three U.S. House seats if, indeed, you get this mass mobilization, big turnout uh, result that, obviously, Gillum's aiming for. So, again, these are other things that make what's happening in Florida right now just incredibly significant. And, and you know, I'm glad you focused on it today because I think this is the race. That not not the only one because we have incredible races in other places like Stacey Abrams in Georgia and Ben Jealous in uh, Maryland and a whole bunch of other candidates coming up around the country who are really exciting and interesting. But I will hold that because DeSantis uh, has is such a Trump character, Trumpian, whatever you want to say, um, that the the juxtaposition in Florida is going to be remarkable, and we'll be watching it right through election night. John Nichols wrote about Andrew Gillum at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. It's a total pleasure, my friend. Next up, Gary Young on the Democrats. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. How can the Democrats beat Donald Trump? For that, we turn to Gary Young. Of course, he's a columnist for The Nation, a fellow at The Nation Institute, an editor-at-large for The Guardian. He knows a lot about kids killed by guns. His book, Another Day in the Death of America, A Chronicle of Ten Short Lives, was awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Prize for combining literary excellence and social concern. It's out now in paperback. We reached him today in London. Gary Young, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, return with us now to March 2016. Ten people are running for the Republican nomination, and Donald Trump is in the lead. The evangelical candidate on the far right is Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Trump takes an unprecedented step in modern American politics and goes after Cruz's wife with an insulting tweet. Heidi Cruz was, and still is, a manager at Goldman Sachs. Gary, you wrote recently that this incident has significance for our politics today, more than two years later, but not because of the tweet itself. Well, that's right. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the head of the Democratic National Committee, sees this horror show unfolding, this kind of, as you say, unprecedented sort of low level of kind of like alley cats attacks. And she says, I want to see Donald Trump speak every day from now until the election. And that chimes with, at the time, Hillary Clinton's uh, version taken from the West Wing, let Donald be Donald. That was, their, that was their line. Bill Clinton had actually kind of gently suggested a year before that Trump might want to stand for the uh, Republican nomination because he thought he would stir it up. 
And the logic behind this was, the longer this man talks, he's obviously not going to win the nomination. The longer he talks, the more he draws out the base poison of the kind of within the Republican base, the more all of the candidates have to play to that base, and the easier it is to beat them then, whoever wins, Rubio or Bush or, or Cruz, who, with all this red meat fed to their base, that's what they will have to satisfy, and then Hillary can just, you know, just just whisk off with the prize at the, at the end of the day. Just let the man talk. He is his own worst enemy. And the significance today is that they are still letting him do it, <laughs> that they have, they have no strategy. They have no message. They are thriving on the basis that there is a resistance to Trump. You know, four of the five biggest marches in American history have taken place in the last couple of years. If you look at the kind of mass protests against the um, separations at the border, the Me Too movement, the Democrats hope to be the beneficiaries of all of this anger, and yet they have formulated nothing as a coherent response to the actual politics. So they're in opposition insofar as they say, we don't like that guy, we're against that guy. But in terms of creating a positive vision for what they would do, an alternative, something that people may rally around, nothing. So they're still just letting him talk and letting him condemn himself and thinking that that's enough. Of course, there is a positive alternative. Uh, today, it's personified by our new hero, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We call her Alex or AOC. And of course, she's the... Democratic Socialist who defeated a leading establishment Democrat for the congressional nomination in the Bronx and Queens. She is going to become the youngest woman in history elected to the House of Representatives. She represents the other kind of politics that's challenging this Democratic oppositionism. Just remind us, how did she get elected? Well, she fought a very kind of robust campaign over a series of very kind of basic easy to grasp messages about free higher education, uh, public schools, Medicare for all, and a kind of strong environmentalist message. And she said, look, if we have money for endless wars, if we have money for trillion dollar tax cuts, then we have money to heal people and to educate people and to kind of um, stop the planetary um, demise. Very clear, very basic, not triangulating, not trying to split the difference, but giving a very clear message of what else is possible, cut through in a way that very few people imagined was even possible. Now, it's the Bronx. I understand that. Not everywhere is going to be like the Bronx in terms of of the appeal of those kind of messages. But first of all, when you look at the appeal of Trump's messages, which are completely incoherent and frankly ludicrous, that quite a few people that I spoke to in Muncie, Indiana, where I spent most of the election in 2016, when I would say to them, do you think Trump's going to make America great again? They'd say, no, I don't think so. They're still going to vote for him. Do you think he's going to bring back these car plants that were here? Is he going to bring them back to Mexico? No, I don't think so. But there were some broad kind of trajectory 
about what he was offering, that they were up for. They needed something to change. And if you contrast that with when I saw Hillary Clinton on the stump in Iowa, and she said, I would rather under-promise and over-deliver. Hmm. Who votes for that? That's like going into an interview and saying, yeah, I don't know if I can do this job, but you know what? I think if I do it, I'm really going to crush it. I'm really going to crush it. So I'm just going to set your sights real low and then, you know, surprise you afterwards. Well, then, you know, don't be surprised if you don't get the job. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been campaigning in the primaries. That season is just about over now. Mm. The Democrats have pretty much picked their congressional and state candidates who will run in November Alex and Bernie Sanders campaigned for several people in the Democratic primaries. Two-thirds of their candidates lost. Uh, The party establishment is now saying, we told you so. Even the Democrats don't want that kind of politics. Uh, What do you think? Well, that's crazy. The notion that a group of people calling themselves the Democratic Socialists of America that phrase which stands somewhere over the last 15 years between an epithet and an eccentricity, (laughs) that they would win a third of the things that they campaign for is actually quite amazing, quite impressive. That what has happened is that this term, socialism, this notion that there might be a different system, a different way of doing things, of organizing things, is returning to, or returning to, is entering mainstream political parlance. So the idea that they lost two-thirds of the seats that they are contesting now shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, I don't think. The fact that they won a third of the seats, that should be a surprise to people. And regardless of the fact the fact that they've lost, of course, they're disappointed in the ones that have lost. But the fact that, so I'm, I'm not claiming, and therefore it's an electoral victory, but politically, what this means is that the Democrats have a significant left caucus within their party. That means anybody who wants to win, in the same way that people who want to win in a district where there's large African Americans, a large amount of African Americans, there's certain things they have to say. There's certain things they have to do. There's certain ways that they have to behave. Well, now there is a significant, motivated, energized set of voters that cannot be ignored across the country. Far wide, in, in constituencies, far less propitious for that kind of politics, one would imagine, than the Bronx. They are there. And therefore, anybody who wants to be elected, regardless of how kind of the right wing that they want to they want to be if they want to be elected then opportunism itself suggests that they are going to have to in some way appeal to this group of people or at least not lose them and there's that new gallup poll out recently that reports that the headline was democrats today are more positive about socialism than capitalism 47 percent of democrats view capitalism positively down from 56% just two years ago, while 57% of Democrats view socialism positively. That is the first time it has ever had that big a gap and a gap in that 
direction. Uh, just in case you're wondering about the Republicans, the Gallup poll found that they were, quote, very positive about capitalism, close quote. Uh, <laughs> what do you make of uh, this striking change that the pollsters have found in democratic views of socialism? One of the things that's interesting about that poll, I think, is it's not so much that socialism is popular as that capitalism has really taken a dive. Yes. And, you know, and that should also not surprise us. We are now 10, 11 years off the economic crash where the poor were made to pay for the mistakes of the rich. Tuition's gone up. Health costs have gone up. Uh, everything's gone up apart from wages. And, um, and the fact that, you know, the stock market is doing well is great for people with stock. Yes. But many people don't have stock. Uh, people in America are working longer. Bankruptcies among old people are, uh, older people are increasing. And so the case for capitalism, that system that was bailed out by the state, uh, in 2008, 2010, is, is, couldn't be in a less convincing uh, stage. And I think we're in this place, and this is true in Britain too. You know, it, it took quite a long time from the Great Depression to the New Deal in terms of uh, people kind of working through old assumptions. Yeah. And uh, the assumptions that held through the... 80s, but particularly 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that there was only one possible system. It was capitalism. It will spread around the world in a neoliberal nature. And that, that there was an inevitability to this, which will benefit us all, has come crashing down around our ears. Uh, there may be people who still believe it, but very few people can actually make a reasonable case for that in this moment. And it takes a while for those old versions of common sense to kind of uh, um, to break down. But that's what I think you're, you're, that's what I think you're seeing. Well, what the Democratic establishment, the Clintonians, reply to this is you have to look where the votes are. And the key swing voters who we could win in November are the suburban white middle-class Republicans who don't like Trump. These are people who vote. These are people who are college-educated, uh, especially the women in this group. They're the ones who we should be recruiting, and they're not going to be recruited by talk about socialism. So all of this kind of Bernie Sanders stuff is going to alienate the key swing voting block that we could win. What's your response to that? Well, first of all, I don't think anybody should be taking lessons from the Clintonians about how to look for votes okay. because that didn't go so well last time. Secondly, I don't think people should go out and campaign for socialism. I think people should go out and campaign for healthcare yeah. and um, for education, free education and affordable education and affordable healthcare and wider access and, you know, against sexual harassment and for some uh, level of redistribution and for infrastructure investment and against cops shooting people dead in the street for no good reason and for uh, a woman's right to choose what to do with her body. I don't think they should, people's starting point for this stuff shouldn't be vote for socialism. You can't eat socialism. 
but vote for your future, vote in your interest. Secondly, if you look at the evidence of the last election, one can argue quite convincingly, and I believe, that the last election was lost by the people who didn't show up. Yeah. And they didn't show up because they were insufficiently inspired. Because Hillary said, I'll underpromise and overdeliver. Because she couldn't make up her mind about NAFTA. Because it wasn't clear whether the billionaire or the Democrat was the one more or less in favor of the banking and finance industry. And so I think that if the Democrats want to win, they have to motivate their base. And it was a depressed and demotivated base that lost last time. Bearing in mind, even that said, they got more votes than Trump, but they didn't get them in the right places. And in the places they didn't get them, it was because people stayed at home. It wasn't because of a massive amount of switching from one side to the other. Last question. We've been talking about how the Democrats are at best divided about what they stand for. What about the Republicans? They don't seem to have that problem. Well, <laughs> the right united insofar as they have the right have given up opposing Trump and decided that they will go along with this thing for as long as it works. But frankly, I think we've reached peak Trump electorally, not politically, but electorally. And I think we're not far off from those cracks, the cracks that you saw. I think we're going to see that turn, likely after the midterms, because it's the Republicans don't have a different viable message to Trump either. That's why he won, because everybody else just sounded like more of the same old and people wanted something uh, more than that. So Republicans don't seem split at the moment because they think that the unity they have is working for them. But that is both time limited and incredibly, incredibly risky. I mean, I was speaking to you in California, John, and we know with uh, Pete Wilson, when he targeted the Latino community, that united a bunch of Republicans around him for then, but that was the end of the Republicans in, in California. Yes. And uh, in terms of where the country's going demographically and where the Trump project is going economically and politically, once the Democrats decide to come out with a message that is pro-middle class, pro-working class, pro-education and health and, and so on, I think that this house of cards will fall pretty rapidly. Gary Young, read him at theguardian.com and thenation.com. Gary, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks for having me, Jim. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Uh, there is a shortage of skilled workers in Minnesota. And the Star Tribune has been reporting on this, uh, especially concrete workers, pipe fitters, um, <clears throat> construction workers of all kinds. And the result is wages are going up for construction workers in Minnesota. 
Uh, 100% of Minnesota construction employers say they will be hiring in the coming uh, weeks and months. 67% say they're having trouble uh, finding qualified, skilled construction workers. Uh, and as a result, they are raising uh, wages and improving their job offers. So especially if you're a concrete worker, a pipe fitter, or an electrician, uh, Minnesota is the place to go. Shortage of skilled workers in Minnesota. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Judith Coburn. She talked about surveillance capitalism in the age of Trump. John Nichols reported on the exciting news from politics in Florida. He says that's going to be the key electoral state in key electoral battleground for the next two months. We'll be covering that story closely. And of course, Gary Young said we've reached peak Trump politically. Want to thank our engineer today, Gary Baca, our producer, Renee Reynolds. And we had additional production help today from William Broughton. Thanks, as always, to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Yeah.